Sing Glory! She's the most comfortable in the water, all but a little clumsy on land. If there's one way to describe Rachel, it'd be this spitfire energy, which is ironic given her love for all things water. It got to a point where she had to make a choice between either sailing or swimming competitively, because obviously she was doing both. With a hand in just about everything, a jack-of-all-trades, she's a prime example in that you can't take anything at face value. In this case, surface value. Former Olympic candidate, snow kite and windsurfing instructor, and the first in North America to offer ROV-supported shipwreck tours, she's the founder of nonprofit Rosalia Project and Coral Ball, acting as spokesperson for our oceans. Through technology, innovation, solutions-based research, STEM programs, and a recent expansion into products, she's bridging that land-sea disconnect between us humans and our home. This is Middle Brainer with Rachel Zoe Miller. A quick heads up, we're dealing with an overseas conversation here, so the audio may reflect this. Coming to you from Vermont and Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Chief ocean lover of a couple organizations, all designed to protect the ocean. So primarily, that's what I do, is I do things with protecting the ocean in mind. And we do that different ways. One was starting a nonprofit called Rosalia Project for a Clean Ocean. And we're going into our 10th year soon, which is exciting. That has been primarily focused on protecting the ocean by addressing the problem of marine debris. And out of Rosalia Project was born a solution to microfiber pollution. And so that's the other company that I'm working on, and that is Coraball, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but that is a the world's first microfiber-catching laundry ball. That's how I found you, and I just freaked out when I saw it. I was like, I need to get in touch. Um, <laughs> awesome. But I would love to hear yeah. how you would best describe yourself separate from your work. Who are you as a person? Gotcha. I am a kind of jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none type of a person. I like every day different. I have no brain hemisphere preference, <laughs> so I tend to flip-flop or have an equal appreciation for art and science which made school this, like, oh, I could do art, I could do science. And I think what I'm doing now combines them both. I love the outside, both winter and summer. And I do my best thinking while skiing, mountain biking, or paddleboarding. That school phase <laughs> must have been crazy to navigate. How does um, the gut instinct and intuition play an active role in your life and decision making? I think that I've been lucky to have the opportunity to pursue the things that make me most excited. So I think that's a sort of instinct thing, like something that makes you excited is related to your, I think, to one's innate ex buildup of experiences and, and that kind of thing. And so, um, I guess my connection to the water is something, you know, it's hard to know if you're born with a connection to a certain part of nature or it's something that was learned. I don't know the answer to that, but for my own self, I am most comfortable in the water. 
I'm a little clumsy on land, kind of a lot clumsy on <laughs> land. <laughs> uh, people, will, I'll trip over something. I generally don't fall down, but I definitely get people look at me sort of, oh, are you going to make it past that smooth sidewalk? <laughs> but in the water, I'm, or on the water, which includes skiing and sailing and, and water things, I just, I feel my my best. And so there's that, that kind of connection that underlies everything I've done, pretty much. So, I, I was going to say your observation about school being crazy is a really good observation that I think for people who have no hard hemisphere preference, so kind of come out between art and science, it can be hard to zero in. And so if you look at my schooling and then a lot of the types of work I've done, it, without Rosalia Project, it doesn't necessarily make sense except for a bit of a thread of the ocean. And then with Rosalia Project, I look back and everything led to Rosalia Project, yeah. the work that I was doing with the nonprofit, and still am. I mean, though, people want you to make a decision right off the bat. They're like, okay, you're you're 15. You really got to start thinking about what you're, you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. It's totally fine to be pulling from all of these different aspects and sources because they're tools, essentially, until one comes upon, like, their their path and what they want to do absolutely and giving space to that is so important yeah and I think you're right like when you're considering someone for a job or like for us we look at a lot of resumes because we have so many amazing people who've come with us over the years on American Promise our research vessel and you're so right certainly if I had been judged entirely on my academic courses and resume alone I would look like a crazy person who couldn't make my decisions who couldn't make a decision but in the end there was a bit of a thread and it all led to where I am now which is pretty amazing I don't think I would have guessed it at the time kind of way way back but and that's the same thing about like you said with looking at people is it's important to talk to people when you see someone who has a lot of different things. They may be a middle brainer like me and they have wide interests, <laughs> but chances are they'll be able to explain what excites them and what brings it all together. Yeah. And I was reading about the volunteer and internship roles and I just really love that you're open and you pull from just a wide variety of like, it's just human community and connection. And at the end of dates through arts, education, food, people coming from startups that are coming together yeah. to find solutions and that that's how you've taken to that space. But backtracking a awesome. little bit, your family yeah. immigrated to America in 1922 from Russia and it was by way of the ocean yes. that they found a place in which they could be themselves in peace and build something for the future. And the ocean has always had a presence within your own life and I want to touch on some of your earliest memories and what that looked like. And you mentioned that you were also a sailor. So I'd love to hear a little bit yes. about that. Cool. So as far as the earliest memories of but my grandmother, my very, very beloved grandmother. So Rosalia is my great-grandmother. And I was born on the second anniversary 
of her death. So I didn't know her sort of in life, but she was my very great grandmother. I was the first grandchild and a girl and the R for Rachel is from the R for Rosalia. But I did know her daughter, my grandmother. She was my beloved grandmother. um, And she and my grandfather, uh, they lived in Philadelphia and they had a house on the Jersey shore, not the section where the TV show is filmed, but a little further south. <laughs> and, so, and I was a child. It wasn't that wild back then. Uh, but every single summer, we went to the shore. And I remember spending all day, every day at the beach, in and out of the water all day. But I also started swimming competitively at seven. And I started sailing at a little sailing club on a lake in upstate New York where I grew up, Saratoga Lake, at nine years old. And um, and I was a competitive kid, so I kept swimming actually all the way through the first college I went to, and I finally stopped swimming um, in order to be on the sailing team. And I started sailing competitively kind of right out of the gate as well. And so skiing I've done my whole life. In addition, I consider that a water sport because the snow will turn into liquid water. It's just a different form. But I haven't done that competitively. I kept that just for me, free and unencumbered. But the sailing, sailing, I think, ultimately is what's kind of led me to where we are now. So I I really loved racing. My dad and I raced um, in separate boats, so single-handed boats, just one person. But we traveled around New York State. Our two boats on a trailer and we'd race in regattas while I was growing up and then I went to college and raced in college and then it's pretty much too far away for me to really talk about we laugh and say like the statute of limitations to talk about an Olympic campaign expires after 10 years and it's been way more than 10 years but I did try to go to the Olympics in sailing I didn't make it but I definitely learned a lot about having a single-minded goal I did all my own fundraising. I raced in regattas all over the world, including one in Medemblik, north of Amsterdam. That was, um, there's a spring, there's a regatta there every spring for Olympic classes. And looking back, that's where I think some, well, even earlier, but more of the seeds were planted about working on protecting the ocean, like where I ended up now. My goal was to try to, was to make the Olympics, to do, to learn and to go as fast as I can and be as smart as I can and make the boat go fast. But I think what I was also seeing and noticing was like trash in the marina, trash in the harbor, that kind of a thing. And that's that moment where that conscious decision went from seeing the ocean as an element of fun and leisure to something that needs to be protected and invested in. And what were the the biggest obstacles you faced in getting Rosalia Project off the ground? I'd say initially there was the dual challenge of obviously funding because that's just a nonprofit's kind of world and the type of profit that we had and the type of education we wanted to do. It was hard to charge the people to whom we were delivering education programs enough to run everything. So that was a challenge. And though I had raised my own money for the Olympic campaign, this was a little bit different. So I had to learn how to do it. Um, The other challenge was, to tell you the truth, it, it was explaining to people what it is we were doing. And 
the fact that we spent some time talking about my kind of art and science thing and liking everything every day different, I think complicated my ability to explain what we were doing in a way that people could understand quickly. So Rosalia Project, from the very start, has used four strategies to address marine debris. We do cleanup, education programs, embrace innovation and technology, and do solutions-based research. And what's amazing is those four things have been part of our mission from the very first year. So we, we thought of it, it, like it was born in late 2009, we started our first programs in 2010, and, it, and people just... It was too much to explain all those four things. And I'd say that was the biggest challenge is sometimes people, I think, wouldn't work with us or support us because they just it was hard to communicate the breadth of our, our plan. When did you actually get the backup of a team and putting down on paper, these are our, this is the basis to how we are going to approach pitching potential partners or sponsors we, so, I mean, in the beginning, it, my team was really my family. It really started primarily me with a great support crew, but not necessarily anyone else executing. So my husband has been a spectacular partner in all this, but he is not part of the day to day. He is great with strategy and being supportive. Um, same with the rest of my family. My brother was one of my first board members as well as a cousin. But uh, in the very beginning, I really had to find people whom I could talk to get some advice and that kind of thing. But then slowly but surely, we managed to bring people on, especially for the summer, just spectacular, passionate intelligent and fun people who were psyched to help build Rosalia Project, especially when we got on the boat. Yes, and the technology. Um, it's all off the shelf, so it's it's been sourced from universities, military, underwater archaeology. What was the first moment like when you procured your first piece of technology? And how do you go about approaching something like that? Well, we were lucky in that the thing that was the immediate predecessor to Rosalia Project, it was a couple, couple of businesses that, that I was running myself. So one was fairly unrelated in a direct way, except that it was connecting people to the water. I taught people how to snow kite in the winter oh, and wow. kite surf, windsurf, stand up paddleboard in the summer. Uh, so it was connecting people to the water in a fairly athletic way. And then the other thing that we did in the summer was we used an ROV, a remotely operated vehicle, to take people on a boat. And without throwing them overboard, we explored shipwrecks. So Lake Champlain has eight shipwrecks that are marked and they have buoys and, and the history has been figured out, like we know their stories. And so we took people off on a boat and I put the robot overboard and we all could see everything the robot saw on a screen, a sunlight readable screen. And I would tell the story of the shipwreck and then the ROV would go down this line and it was kind of dark because it's an inland lake. 
And then all of a sudden, we'd see this shipwreck loom, and, and it was pretty awesome. Um, and it was through that, we were the first people in North America to do ROV-supported shipwreck tours in real time. And that was part of how we started or why we started with focusing on the underwater and using ROVs to connect people to their natural world, not so much through shipwrecks with Rosalia Project, but through the lens of marine debris and understanding what's in their urban harbors, like what's right under their toes while standing at a dock. And the way we got the first ROV, so we had bought our first first one because we were using it for the shipwreck tours. But Hector the Collector, our centerpiece ROV, the one with the grabber that could pick trash up, that one we got from Video Ray, the spectacular company who makes it, um, because I had been working with them to teach people to be ROV pilots, and they really believed in what we were doing. So I was very lucky I did not need to cold call a technology company. It was part of a relationship that I'd already built doing the shipwreck tours. I also want to touch on American Promise, a yacht originally designed by naval architect Ted Hood and served as yeah. a boat for Dodge Morgan, who became the first American to sail solo around the world with no stops. And I'm, I'm like, how did how did you get American Promise? I know we're so lucky. We are so lucky. Uh, it was for, so Dodge Morgan sailed her around the world, broke the world record, sailed around alone without stopping, broke the world record, and uh, his his uh, record was Bermuda to Bermuda, but he started in Maine, so he broke the record, he and his son sailed back to Maine, he got home, and he promptly donated the boat to the U.S. Naval Academy. So the U.S. Naval Academy used, they're in Annapolis, uh, Maryland, up the Chesapeake, and they used Promise for sail training and they did big trips to Ireland and France and up to Maine and all sorts. And then they just got so many boats donated. I think they decided that she was redundant. And so they listed the boat for sale and the boat had been for a while, I think. But when we started looking in early 2010, interestingly, the boat wasn't listed as American promise, the historic boat. It was just listed as a Ted hood 60. And, um, and my husband figured out that it was American Promise. And, and because the boat had first been sailed by one person and then sailed by 17, which is how the Navy did their sail training, it really wasn't, it was a very specialized boat. It wasn't a great boat for a couple who wanted to go cruising to buy. And it just, it was a little bit weird for the standard person who wanted a 60 footer. However, it was perfect for us. And so we were really lucky that when we that my husband, who's completely into sailing at a very high level, he figured out it was promised, so we knew it was a very special boat, and we went down and it was definitely love at first sight. And you she's completely converted into this combo of solar, wind, and hydropower, and has completed yeah. over four full expeditions as of last year. What was that first expedition like? So, yeah, actually, that's four full expeditions without turning on the generator. We've been operating American Promise every year since 2011, including 2011. And it's amazing. So, like, the two separate things, the expeditions are 
exciting and fulfilling and give us an opportunity to make an impact right where it's needed at the land-sea interface. We have a focus on our coastal and urban waters in a very deliberate way because as we because we're working on the problem of marine debris, we know that somewhere in the range of 80% of marine debris comes from land and we believe that working at the land-sea interface for our organization is the most cost-effective and high-impact way to address the problem. So the expeditions are, uh, they have their focus on a combination of those four strategies. So sometimes they're heavy on science and education, and sometimes they're big cleanup and education programs. And sometimes we go in and it is about supporting innovation and technology. So we're always using some combination of those four strategies. And part of what we're doing, and thanks to a really awesome partner called 11th Hour Racing, we were able to really convert the boat from a fairly inefficient diesel guzzler to the greenest sailing research vessel in the world with hydro, wind, and solar power to power everything except propulsion. So on a boat, that's navigation, lights, uh, charging computers and, and video. Uh, it's powering Hector the Collector, our RV. So Hector is powered by the sun or the wind. And then we repowered, so we put a new engine in that's a state-of-the-art. It's called a Tier 3 marine diesel. Uh, so we are using a diesel engine for propulsion, but the most efficient one available. And all of the internships and the volunteer opportunities also take place on American Promise. So to anyone who's listening, this is an insane, insane opportunity. How long are you guys usually out there for? Yes, please. For people who are listening and are psyched about what we're doing. And Rachel, I think you should come with us. If you are interested in coming over to the East Coast, the way we roll is that all you have to do is get yourself, so they're unpaid volunteer slash internship opportunities, all you have to do is get yourself to the boat and then we'll take care of you so you don't need to pay to participate. We'll feed you, give you some sweet Resolve Your Project gear, and you are part of the team. So, Rachel, we'll keep in, tr- keep in touch if you wanted to join us sometime. That yes. would be awesome. You could, you could broadcast from American Live podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> we could put you, like, in the dinghy among the, like, in the Gulf of Maine gyre or next to these amazing gray seals and harbor seals squawking in the background. So I'll tell you what you'd be, uh, what you'd be looking at. We generally operate between, including the months of June, July, and August, some combination in there. We are home-ported, or expedition base, is in Kittery, Maine. That is where Maine and New Hampshire border. It's about an hour and 10 minutes from Boston's Logan Airport. So we're pretty, pretty easy to get to. Our sailing slash expedition area for the last bunch of years has been broadly New York City to Bar Harbor, Maine, and on a smaller scale, Boston to Bar Harbor, so the Gulf of Maine. We 
do expeditions generally that are about 18 to 30 days long. And people are welcome to join us for less because they're unpaid internships. We totally get that sometimes people just can't get off that far and need to work. So we have some flexibility for bringing people on for shorter duration. Um, people who come on board are, are entirely part of the crew. So if the expedition is about education, then as a crew member, you would be helping deliver the education program. And you already noticed that we love a diversity of academic, professional, and geographic backgrounds on the boat. And that means it almost doesn't matter what your academic or professional experience is, because I know that there will be a way to apply it to protecting the ocean. And we just need people who are completely down with our mission and living on a boat with up to nine people, sharing the cooking and cleaning and sailing and kind of getting a little sandy, salty and muddy along the way. What have been some of your most memorable moments and what kind of people have you had on board before? Oh, we have amazing people. So our, we do have a minimum age of 18, but no maximum age. So one memorable person is our oldest. She was 71 years old. She came on board as an onboard re reporter. She took stunning photographs. I'll say she needed a nap every now and then, but it was pretty awesome to have her aboard. We've had um, someone who, who by trade was an accountant, but so that doesn't necessarily, it's hard to see that applied. However, she was the mother of two lobstermen. And she was so interesting because she identified herself as an environmentalist. And yet she lived on an island and her two sons were active lobstermen. And for that, for us, that was totally and completely valuable sort of ex set of experiences to be an environmentalist, to live on an island in Maine, and yet be that closely involved in a fishing industry that's not without controversy. Let's see, we've had startup people. We've had, uh, so people involved in startups from Boston to San Francisco who've really brought some fascinating stories and experience. Our STEM education program, so our, our program where we're wanting to inspire young people, especially young coastal people, to get excited about science, technology, engineering, and math, sort of through the lens of the ocean, uh, and marine debris, that program relies on a really hands-on series of activities from doing cleanup with data to looking at the data, analyzing it, comparing it to global and local data sets, figuring out a problem that kind of screams at them, and then coming up with potential implementable solutions to that problem. Having startup people on board, even if their startups are something a little bit different, we've had people from energy startups and ROV startups. But they're bringing the experience of, of taking an idea to life. So that's exciting. We've had funding partners come on board. We have a great, great partner. They make crazy, delicious organic candy. They're called Surf Sweets. Ooh, and their director of marketing. Yeah, I know. And candy. I'll tell you, thinking about recollections, like one of the best phone calls I ever got uh, with Rosalia Project was one that started with, 
I have a candy company who's interested in partnering, like an organic candy company who's interested in partnering with you. Do you have a minimum amount of support for that? Wow. <laughs> I have to say, I was like, no, no minimum. <laughs> no, no, over. I would love to talk to an organic candy company called Serve Sweets who wants to partner with us. And the coolest thing is that we've been working with Serve Sweets now for... That was 2014. We're going into our fifth year of a spectacular partnership. And so they support our STEM education program and they give us candy and we share content. It's it's really awesome. But that right that was there. One of my best phone calls. Like who would have who would have <laughs> like connected the dots? And it's just it really just goes back to this place of this world is ours, and when we come together as a collective people from all of these backgrounds that are our own journeys yeah. and thrive together, that's where we make steps and moves. It makes it better. It does. It does. It makes it better. And then, so the organization that connected us is called 1% for the Planet, and so they're doing pretty cool things. But, you know... Back to the diverse backgrounds on the boat, I did start with a fairly kind of undergrad science-heavy group, and we had some of the most wonderful people come with us. And so there was nothing wrong with those early groups, truly wonderful people. But we did find that when I just gave it a go to put people, I decided that I wanted to see what would happen if we had people from every decade, from 20s to 50s on board, what would be the difference? And we had just as much fun, but we did better with mission and execution. And we haven't looked back. You know, having multiple age groups and these multiple backgrounds has been, I think, one of the best things that we've or best kind of attitudes that we've taken and that's something that developed it didn't necessarily start out that way and speaking to getting people involved this is a little closer to home coraball yeah something so easily to implement within your own domestic routine it's essentially a laundry ball to prevent against the microfibers that are being eliminated via the drains of our washing machine and this is a form of pollution that never even crossed my mind. And when I read one of your opening statements, we're essentially eating our own clothing. I was disgusted. I was pissed off that something so small, we have set up our domestic way of living to just be so short-sighted and self-centered. And in consequence, I really want to know what that lead up to Coraball looked like. And the are you still, was it with the same team that you're working with on Rosalia? Or how did you go about sourcing, perhaps bringing new people online when it comes to design and just general user feasibility? Yeah. So what if you practically have had the same experience we did, your reaction was the same as ours. We did not discover the problem. But we did because we've been working on um, marine debris and all of its forms. We did derelict fishing gear work. We did consumer debris work, like the stuff that you find on beaches. And we had been starting to do uh, floating micro trash work. We were doing uh, testing from 2012 to 2013 
looking at the trash floating in urban harbors, and nearly all of it was microplastic, all of what we found. I think we found like one piece of paper or something. Otherwise, it was a combination of small filaments and little, like the microbeads that eventually got banned in most places, and fragments. And so as we were learning more about microplastic, we learned about the problem of microfiber pollution and had the same reaction you did. It screamed at us. And that's the expression we use now. You know, have you heard the expression, that spoke to me? Well, for us, this screamed at us. We thought, oh my God, that's crazy. Of course that's happening. We never thought of it before, but if your clothes go threadbare, the threads have to go somewhere. And it just didn't occur to anyone until it was discovered by a team at Plymouth University. And we had the same reaction you did. It just really, really riled us up. And so pretty, we also thought, wow, this is going to prove to be one of the biggest problems our ocean faces. And we want to see if we can come up with a solution. We know this is going to be complex. And we know there's not going to be one solution that's going to fix it. But we want to focus on this problem and see what we can come up with. And that was in 2013. So we kind of molded over for a while. It, it didn't have, nothing happened real quickly. In 2014, I might get the years wrong. 2014 to 15, we had a seed of an idea and we applied to an accelerator program that got rejected. So we kind of developed the idea a little bit more. And then between 2016 and 20, yeah, and then 20, late 2015, we applied again, and this time we got in. And it was with a, the early, early, early precursor to the core ball. Like, it didn't even, like, it was a square thing that didn't work at all. <laughs> like, not even at all. But, um, you know, we learned. Your first idea is very rarely the one that works. I, I would say that is extremely the exception rather than the rule. Um, but somebody believed in our idea, Think Beyond Plastic. And so we started to get not so much design help, but help in the big picture of the act of bringing an idea to reality. Our design team was my husband, who's got this incredible ability to see patterns in the world. So he's like the true inventor of the group. Brooke Winslow is part of our design team. She had been an intern for Rosalia Project since 2013, and then when she graduated from school, we said we wanted to write a first refusal for her. <laughs> and luckily, we were able to offer her a job. And so she is the technical designer. She takes, like, sort of James's big ideas and turns them into something that comes out of a 3D printer. And my role on the design team is really the kind of mechanical problem solver. So when we came up with something that could be 3D printed but could not be injection molded, I kind of figured out how to adapt it to be injection moldable without losing the sort of function. So the three of us, I love our design team because we have complete complementary but non-overlapping skills. Neither James nor I could do what Brooke does. She has infinite patience and she's got this great eye. I would say that James is not interested in doing what Brooke and I do and those two and, you know, we just we all have these complementary but non-overlapping skills. So that's the team. And yeah, together we 
went through lots of iterations of our microfiber catcher until we got, and then we used some feedback from people to understand that our first idea, which you couldn't clean yourself, wasn't going to work. And that's how we came to the Cora ball that we launched with on Kickstarter in March of 2017. There's, um, there's one store here that stocks it. And I was like, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, but I really yeah, admire. Two. We got two in the Netherlands. Oh, yes. Bingo. Um, but the fact that you are just 100% transparent about what the product still needs to improve upon as well, and that really speaks yeah. to just this general need of people who need to be more receptive towards initiatives and individuals who are taking a stand in light of current political and societal and environmental landscape. And I want to know what that feedback has looked like so far, what the customers been saying, and how has this kind of fed into the next steps? Like, what do you guys see as the follow-up? Gotcha. So, I uh, certainly appreciate that. And yes, we never came out and said, we are the only solution. That is not what our message has been. In fact, our goal with the Cora Ball was we knew we were in early. We knew we were work. We were one of the first people working on a solution that you could hold and use and implement quickly. And in fact, we wrote our patent to include things like using our technology in line in washing machines or in wastewater treatment plants or like in rivers. But we started with a consumer product because our two goals were to make an impact as quickly as we could, to stop as much fiber as we could from getting into our public waterways, but also to raise awareness because we knew that just putting something in your washing machine could not be the only, was not going to be the only answer to this problem. There's no silver bullet here, but we are going to be one of the solutions and that the presence of this solution, I we hoped and we think is helping to inspire solutions upstream of customers. So that some um, incredible work that's going on with uh, like the needs are textiles. Can we make textiles more resilient and downstream? So or kind of at the customer level, put, putting filters in washing machines people are working on that there's a european based company there's a canadian company who are doing that um planet care and lint lover so we really wanted to inspire more innovation that was part of our goal um and yeah you know we have far more happy customers than unhappy customers Unfortunately, the unhappy tend to be the more vocal. So that's just something we've learned is a reality. Uh, interestingly, the thing that actually was the worst was that we were about July, August, September, October, three to four months late to ship our Kickstarter rewards. And it was pretty crazy how angry some people were over that. Uh, and four months isn't even bad in the in the world of crowdfunding, of of being sort of past the day the time that you said you'd ship. So, um, so that was that was tough. But we believe in the Cora Ball being one of the solutions. We believe that it is doing its job. It's raising awareness. It's inspiring innovation. 
and it is making an impact right now. So next steps for the Coraball, you know, we're, we, we've got a survey out to help us understand when it's being most effective and for whom. There are like 60 plus variables that affect, that, that are related to doing laundry that we've counted, 60 plus. And those will affect the rate of shedding, the catch rate. And so it's a pretty complicated, high variable science. So we're working on understanding what the experience of our Coraball users is so that we can improve on the product, figure out best practices. Um, we're also working on some new products to help people live a low footprint life Ooh. and to appreciate the kind of, of, like to appreciate your stuff. And I think stuff is probably a bad word to, to, to even use here. I want people to say, okay, I need to buy a thing to do a job, but to really appreciate that thing, whether it's a device or whatever it is, but to say, like, how is it made? Is it beautiful? Does it make me happy? Is it sustainable? Can it last a long time or will it last a long time? And so those are our design parameters as we go forward is to say we want to acknowledge people's need for convenience or assistance in cooking or living or whatever it is, but to do it with objects that are sustainable and beautiful. And so we're working on that. And you'll be the first to know when we're ready to launch our next, uh, our next item. We're almost there. Yes. Yeah, it really goes Yay. from this fast fashion mindset to slow living and doing it with intention and looking outwards from ourselves and seeing that the impact we're having and even just going deeper, being in alignment with yourself and that in not needing so many physical objects, why are we trying to fill this hole? Like, why do we need so much? And just having these... these yeah, and some... Yeah, keep going. You're, you're, I love what you're saying. I love what you're saying. Yeah, and I was just going to back you up to say, you know, there's some things that we do need, and why can't those things be sustainable and beautiful and give you some joy? There's so many objects out there that feel as cheap as they are and feel as kind of bad for the planet as they are. You know, there's some things that we use that they just don't feel good to use. And we're looking to replace some of that stuff. Yeah. And I really like how Rosalia, it's an aspect to which, you know, you can go out to and you can do an internship or volunteer. And with Coraball, it is it nips it in the bud, essentially. It is something that you can use at home. And hopefully families and younger children are going to be seeing their parents and perhaps like when they're doing chores oh why am I putting this into the washer and from there that 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 seed is planted and they're going to educate themselves and like hopefully their peers on what is really going on here I would love to hear about a time in your life where it was guts versus logic, and you went with your gut. 
that is a good question and a very relevant for your podcast. Yeah. It's my favorite question. I mean, it's got to be probably just pulling the trigger on Rosalia Project at the beginning. It, yeah, I want to make sure that I like this answer best. Um, You know, in a lot of ways, our goal when we decided to do this was let's protect the ocean. Like that's a crazy statement for just someone who lives in Vermont, who immediately before that has been teaching people to kite surf and snow kite and, and looking at shipwrecks through an ROV, you know, to say, we want to start an organization to protect the ocean. And it really, in a lot of ways that, that, that statement defies logic straight up. <laughs> it really does. Like, that's crazy. And I think we just said we got to try. We have to just try. I've definitely been a sort of just up first look later, but not if I didn't scope it out first. Like I, I am a control the controllables person, but yet I'll still teach people to snow kite or go free diving or that kind of thing that, that I believe in how can one person with a supportive family, even with a supportive family, really go forward and make an impact to make it all worth it. And so I think there was a moment where I did stop and say, this is crazy, this defies logic. But I did fundamentally believe that, that I think that's probably why I was put on the planet. And I did have the support of my family, even if it's a small family, it's big, heartfelt support, and that we figure out how to do this. So I'd say, looking back, I'm so glad that we overrode logic to just go ahead and try it and see what would happen. This is Rachel Z. Miller, Guts and Glory, signing off. This was Middle Brainer with Rachel Z. Miller. Refer to the show notes to further get to know our guest. Share your thoughts and show us some love by subscribing. Our guest has to be featured on the podcast. Released every other Monday. Thanks for lending us an ear. Passing on the mic.